You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wine, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is. Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Crispin Boyer back on the show with me. Uh, he was with us a couple of years ago when his first book in the Zeus the Mighty uh, series came out. Today, he's back to talk about book four in the series, Zeus the Mighty, the epic escape from the underworld. Uh, this book is so much fun. The whole series is so much fun, Crispin. Um, I love it so much, and I love what you're doing with it. Uh, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's great to catch up with you and talk. see, see where we've come with this series. Absolutely. Um, so when we talked last, I was looking back this morning, and it looks like we talked in 2019. Uh, and you know, little did any of us know, you know, at that time when we were talking that the world was just going to, you know, completely turn upside down since then. So, what you know, one thing I've I've uh, really enjoyed uh, talking with authors about is, you know, how has um, how has the the time of, you know, lockdowns and pandemics uh, affected you as a writer? Because, you know, for for the most part. Uh, you know, we writers uh, spend most of our time kind of, you know, in an office by ourselves or in a spare yeah. bedroom or something. And, you know, so uh, the pandemic, does, you know, wouldn't appear to have a whole lot of effect on our day to day life. But it, it's interesting when the rest of society kind of starts <laughs> starts working the same way you do. How, how has it affected you? <laughs> Yeah, we we you and I we've been working from home since way before it was cool. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, when we last talked, we were just such such optimistic, sweet summer children. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it, it the pandemic uh, it, it it can really it turn your personal life topsy turvy. You know, as you as you, you know, your friends and colleagues and, and and family, you're worried about them, and it can certainly be distracting. Um, my my spouse and I, uh, whenever I'd written the first book, uh, we, you know, we were living in California and we, um, we bought a house in Hawaii. And that's the, one of the nice things about being a writer is really, I can work from anywhere with an, inter- I need a laptop and an internet connection. So it, right. it's pretty low overhead. Uh, I've written books literally just and commuting with my wife driving in the passenger seat. I've been in the passenger seat of the car, I've, I've, you know, for road trips, I'll sit there and write. So we can I, we can really just write anywhere, and so, you know, we've lived in in rural. We lived in Mexico uh, on, along the Caribbean, and I and it's nice to be able to have inspiring scenery and just, um, you know, it, it it's the kind of thing that nourishes your uh, soul and just you know it helps you relax and, and bring out. So you can really just when you sit down to write, you can really just concentrate and, re- and you know sometimes you like you said you're just sitting in a room staring at the wall and that that's fine too <laughs> um and so we were in living in california and, and we had bought a house in hawaii cause that's where we wanted to move to and have a farm and, and we bought the house right before closed on the house before the pandemic and then the pandemic hit and we realized that if we didn't drop everything and move now we might get stuck uh and 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 
in California while there was all these lockdowns and everything. So we basically scurried and, and moved at the last minute and got here to this this house in, in and that's where we've been really been able to hunker down during the pandemic. And it's lucky for for me, we're fortunate. It's uh, you know we have a little farm, we've got a bunch of animals, so um, I was able to to be you know once again living in a, in a nice, uh, inspiring, peaceful place to write. And um, you know, and and I had this the, the Zeus series that uh, now book four, and um, it's I can't. You know, it's interesting, like, how, how did the ordeal of going through a pandemic affect the writing and the characters? And I, I hopefully not at all. Like, hopefully, <laughs> like, yeah. the stories is just as characters. You know, they're, they're books for middle school kids. They're supposed to be fun. They're escapism. They, they, they retell Greek myths in a fun, silly wrapper of animals at a pet rescue center. So they're supposed to be delightful, you know, middle school fiction and they should be an escape from the realities of the world. And, and I think that being able to, to live here and, and have my bubble uh, has helped. And, and I imagine a lot of writers need to, to find their, it's already to be a writer, you need to find a bubble. You need to find a place to be and try and be free of distractions. You know, I'm, I know there's all kinds, there's apps on your computer that actually just are a screen that you write in, turn off all notifications, all, uh, all right. any, any, any opportunity to jump in and check your, check your social media and um yeah and that way uh maybe the bubble has been a little bit harder to maintain through a pandemic but uh i, I you got to do it <laughs> yeah you got to be able to focus and and meet the deadlines and, and deliver content that uh you know I'm, i always say the first first draft is always terrible and that's fine it's done and just going to go through revisions and work from there so, so yeah that's i guess kind of a long-winded way of saying <laughs> pandemic affected my process. Well, you know, if you have to be locked down at home, uh, being locked down at home in Hawaii is uh, <laughs> kind of the, the best of all worlds, I guess. I'm not, yes, yeah, I'm lucky. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So we talked about the um, the Zeus the Mighty series. The book four is out now, the epic escape from the underworld. And, um you know, there, uh, you you kind of alluded to that these are these are fun escapism books for for middle graders, um, but they're based on and we touched on this a little bit last time. The they're based on the myths that have been handed down, you know, generations, you know, thousands of years, really, uh, when you really look at it. Um, what is it about these stories, these myths that have had such lasting power that that really still stick with people and that uh that we want to retell them and repackage them with you know new interesting characters and things like you've done with zeus the mighty what what is it about these stories that that have lasted the test of time yeah it, i think you know because this was one of the first fiction series from national geographic kids uh they they want to still have an educational element. So there, there's that aspect to it where these are stories that are based, each each book in the series is based on a different myth. So they're, they're stories based on Greek mythology and then and that's like an avenue to study and learn about ancient Greece. So there's some geography aspects to it as well. And then kind of, you know, overall history of how ancient Greeks viewed the world and, and how mortal, you know, characters were kind of heroes. So there's that element, but then the stories themselves, like you said, you know, these started as, as 
oral stories that, that before they were written down, you know, people in the city states of ancient Greece would, the storytellers would tell stories of the gods and, and, and the mortal characters that are in the stories. And by the time, you know, these stories were finally written down, you know, with, uh, with, with you know, Homer and, and the, the Odyssey and, and the, everyone knew who these characters were. It's kind of like comic books, like people generally can go and see an Avengers movie, but they know who the characters are uh, yeah. from just the, the, the rich mythology. And even at this point, you know, I grew up in comic books. You don't have to be a comic book geek to know who Batman is. <laughs> it's, it's kind of the same thing. Like these stories have been around so long and ingrained so long in the culture that you kind of know, you know, who, you know, who Zeus is, you know, who Hercules or Achilles is. Uh, when I was a kid, I would see, Clash of the Titans or Chasing the Argonauts movies. And, I, you know, I didn't at the time know that this is based on Greek mythology. I just liked it because it was cool stories with monsters and magical items. And that's just, that's pretty timeless stuff. It's the, the hero's journey, the, the what, you know, the, the, the mortal hero with, with defying the odds and battling the supernatural. It really does not go out of style. And that's just, the same thing with these these stories you know you've got these you know it's already you're, you're talking about animals in a pet rescue center who all think they're they're greek gods and so that that kind of does stretch the boundaries of believability <laughs> and, you know they all they can all talk to each other a dog and a cat and a, and a hamster and a fish they can all talk and communicate with each other they can understand the human owner of the pet rescue center but the human owner can't understand them. These are the kind of rules that are set up in things like the movie Toy Story and and that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, it's, so it's it's a way to take to take like this fresh approach, and retell these stories, hit all the the main parts from the myths that that really the the core elements that are just part of storytelling and drama. And um, you know, if kids read it and they they don't even know it's based on mythology. That's great. As long as it's a fun story and it captures their interest. So book one in the series, Zeus, the mighty, the quest for the golden fleas um, is obviously a pun on the golden fleece. Uh, book two, the maze of the menacing minotaur uh, book three, the trials of Harry Cleese. Ha ha. Uh, and now book four, the epic escape from the underworld. Um, how do you choose um, which uh, mythological story you're going to tackle next? Well, that's the that's when we first set out to do the series. We just knew we wanted each book to hit a different myth. It's funny when you're reading the titles, I realize the puns in the titles is not consistent. But what I'm going to say is that it's every other book will have a pun in the title. That's my new rule. <laughs> <laughs> so books two and four have no puns in the title. Um, so yeah, we knew there's the the I guess you know you see Led Zeppelin, you want to hear Stairway to Heaven, or or you, so you, you, there's certain standard, uh, certain hits of Greek mythology that you've got to cover. So there's monsters like the Minotaur, or there's the the Odyssey, or you know the the Golden Fleece, and so we knew that each book would focus on a different myth, and we kind of outlined what are the myths that are most adaptable um, to a kid's book. And, and there was, in terms of an overarching overarching storyline, um, we knew we just wanted the characters to kind of grow and, and count on each other in, in new ways and learn things about each other. Because ultimately, the, 
the hero is Zeus, who's a little hamster, and he thinks he's Zeus, the king of the gods. So he's got a big ego. He's always he's, he tends to <laughs> to not take uh, well to anyone usurping his authority, and generally goes off on uh, on these, these half cocked plans, and, and it's up to the other Olympians to kind of save him from his worst impulses. So that's that's always going to happen. He's never Zeus will never become. Uh, He'll, he'll, he's always going to be an idiot. So <laughs> that. this is like one of the rules. It's like part of the story. Um, you know, it's in the, the Bible for the series. Like this is Zeus. This is how he is. He's, he's kind of like Michael Scott from The Office. Kind of uh, got a decent heart, but he's, he's not too smart. And as the series wears on, it goes on, we know we wanted to expand their realm and show other parts of Greek mythology. So um, in this book, we, we explore the underworld. And that, that becomes... Part of the challenge is these are animals that ostensibly are all living at a pet shop in Athens, Greece. So how then do you add, uh, say, you know, a brand new realm? And in past books, I've expanded. So they go out into the backyard of the pet center. And, you know, then out there, there's all kinds of other things that could serve, stand in as monsters and, and other characters. So in this book, the underworld is actually the crawl space underneath the pet rescue center. <laughs> and crawl spaces in general are pretty creepy places. You know, you can right. go down, fix a leak, or you know, do anything. <laughs> They're not pleasant places. But the one thing I learned too, working on this book, is the underworld isn't necessarily. It's not. It's not like hell, or it's. It's not like some classic uh, terrible place. It's actually described in in mythology as being, you know, kind of has an eerie beauty to it, and it's uh, trippy and and wild, and not. It's not even necessarily a bad place. It's just the next place that you that the uh, ancient Greeks believed they would go um, after they, they passed on from, from this realm. So it's not necessarily a bad place. So when, when I, And I wanted to convey that too. I did want to make an element of being kind of scary and creepy because kids love that. But at the same time, it's, it's not, uh, not like a lake of fire or something. Right. Um, the, the character of Zeus, but you alluded to this a minute ago, that um, you know, he's kind of... Um, He's this character that uh, has good intentions and, and but doesn't always um, uh, he, he's, he's constantly getting in trouble, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And um, what does having a character like that um, give you as the writer, you know, as opposed to the actual Zeus, who is um, who is, you know, a literal God um, ha- having a character who who kind of thinks of himself that way kind of opens up a lot of possibilities. What, what does that do for you as a writer? Uh, definitely. And I, I learned this when I wrote the first book is that, you know, you kind of look at the elements of a story and you want a good protagonist and you want a good antagonist. And for the first story, there wasn't necessarily an antagonist, but uh, it, you can take a character like Zeus and he could be his own worst enemy and that he gets in the way of, his, of himself and causes his own problems. Um, so that's, that's like one very handy thing is you can make a, a, the character the hero, but also the villain because he's, he, 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 he like can screw things up for everybody. And then he, through a process of you know, a little bit of self-growth and, and cooperation with his companions, he can overcome <laughs> the, the villain of the story, which is his own... Um, you know, his own bad instincts. And, and that's, that's what's good because it's not always easy to come up aside from, you know, there's monsters that are in mythology. It's not always easy to come up with 
like a villain for the series. And even in this in this book, we have Hades, who's the ruler of the underworld, but he isn't necessarily a bad guy. He's just got his jurisdiction, which is the underworld, and Zeus being uh, what he thinks is the god of everything. Already, Zeus doesn't like Poseidon, because Poseidon is a, a pufferfish who rules the seas, which is the aquarium section. And, al- and already, Zeus doesn't like this guy, because Zeus likes to think he's the head honcho of everything. So now he's running into another... And in mythology itself, Poseidon, Zeus, and, and Hades are actually all related. Everyone's everyone's a brother. <laughs> uh, it doesn't carry through to this, but it, it um, that way the, the the villains don't necessarily have to be you know mustache twirling bad guys wearing black hats. They can just be rivals to Zeus, and then that helps. And in that way, they can all that kind of helps create the drama because then. They're going about their lives in these, as they live out these myths and encountering these other monsters, and, but while also dealing with these complex interactions with each other. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's all pretty easy for kids to identify with. Like, uh, of course, Zeus would, would have a big ego. He's Zeus. And, of course, he would butt heads with Hades or with Poseidon. And, and that's half the fun then to see how they get along and can resolve their issues. And then on top of that, you've got to throw in a few magic items like an invisibility helmet and pretty good pretty good ingredients for a story right things we never got over the new book by best-selling author lucy score bearded bad boy barber knox refers to live his life the way he takes his coffee alone unless you count his basset hound Waylon. knox doesn't tolerate drama even when it comes in the form of a stranded runaway bride naomi wasn't just running away from her wedding she was riding to the rescue of her estranged twin to knock him out Virginia, a rough around the edges town where disputes are settled the old-fashioned way, with fist and beer, usually in that order. Too bad for Naomi, her evil twin hasn't changed at all. After helping herself to Naomi's car and cash, Tina leaves her with something unexpected, the niece Naomi didn't know she had. Now she's stuck in town with no car, no job, no plan, and no home with an 11-year-old going on 30 to take care of. There's a reason Knox doesn't do complications or high-maintenance women, especially not the romantic ones. But since Naomi's life imploded right in front of him, the least he can do is help her out of her jam. And just as soon as she stops getting into new trouble, he can leave her alone and get back to his peaceful, solitary life. At least that's the plan until the trouble turns to real danger. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author, Lucy Score. An Innocent Client, the first book in the Joe Dillard legal thriller series. A preacher is found brutally murdered in a Tennessee motel room. A beautiful, mysterious young girl is accused. In this best-selling debut, criminal defense lawyer Joe Dillard has become jaded over the years as he's tried to balance his career against his conscience. Savvy but cynical, Dillard wants to quit doing criminal defense, but he can't resist the chance to represent someone who might actually be innocent. His drug-addicted sister has just been released from prison, and his mother is succumbing to Alzheimer's. But Dillard's commitment to the case never wavers despite the personal troubles and professional demands that threaten to destroy him. Chosen by BookBub readers as one of the top 100 crime novels of all time, Get started on this great series with an innocent client where it all started. 
read for free with Kindle Unlimited or buy it in paperback or audiobook. An Innocent Client by Scott Pratt. Um, one of the the best things about this book series that I love so much is the cast of characters that you've created um, along with Zeus. Um, how important is it uh, to you to have a, a, a strong um, supporting cast? It's, I think it's really important, especially because they're the other characters are all they all add a certain element to it. And and whenever so Zeus, the first Zeus book was my first fiction book. I've been writing nonfiction for a long time. And I think with that book I made before it got printed, I made a rookie mistake and I added in too many characters. I was like, well, there's 12 Olympian gods and goddesses from mythology. So I, I had like I'd say another three Olympians that were all in the mix with Zeus. And then you know, National Geographic, they took the manuscript and they partnered me with a, a, an editor of children's books. And she said, oh, this is good, but you it's too complicated. There's too many characters. It's hard to keep track. You're losing the each character's personality is getting lost and it's just too much. So I that's when in the first book, then it quickly pared it down to what we determined was a reasonable amount of characters that can, A, ser- serve different aspects. Of, of helping Zeus get out of different scrapes, to have different personalities. And in a way they are kind of like, you know, these characters are like superheroes or, or the X-Men. They each have their own abilities and powers. You know, you've got Athena who's the goddess of wisdom is really smart and kind of the peacemaker of the group. Uh, you've got Poseidon, the puffer fish who, whenever he's traveling with the animals, he's in this little dive helmet. It's connected to the tanks and he's, uh, he, he's like a very logical character. And then you've got uh, Zeus's best friend, Demeter, who's a grasshopper, and and then you got Ares, who's a pug, and that's the god of war, and he's just this little ball of chaos who just you know <laughs> charges into stuff without thinking about it. And so that seemed like a good mix for the first book. And honestly, at, at first I thought, okay, maybe every book I can introduce a new Olympian god. And it took actually till book three where I did introduce another character that a new. I introduced Hermes, who's a, a hen, chicken. And uh, and actually, this, this she's based on one of the chickens that I have here at the farm, which is fun. But uh, and now, now I feel like this is a solid team. Like I don't really need to. Uh, if I introduce anyone else to the team, it's just it's it's hard. You know these these books are about twenty four thousand words each, so it's not super. It's not huge uh, amount of yeah. in real estate, and also they have to be illustrated and. Um, I think this is a good amount of characters to balance everything out and, and keep track of and also add like different elements. They kind of act as Zeus's conscience. They, they can, uh, you know, influence him in different ways. And um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're the, you know, they're, they're the real narrative engine of this whole thing and that they can, you know, they can, if I need, they, they need to, re- if Zeus needs to be rescued. They can team up and rescue him. If Zeus, needs like some insight or some help they can help influence them they need to team up against a villain they can all team up and uh generally they they all you know they they all have and they're all funny characters like there's a lot of opportunity for comedy which is the other big part of the series it's, it's got to be like funny and engaging so so yeah to have a, a puffer fish rolling around in a dive helmet attached to the dive tank and just itself lead to some silly situations Crispin, let's let's talk about your writing process um, just a little bit. I, I know that before you started writing this series, like you said, you wrote nonfiction, um, and and now the these books are based 
loosely on on Greek mythology. You know, there's a there's a thread of the story that that we're familiar with, but you add in characters that obviously were not in those original myths and you you retell them. Um, so there's a there's a lot of creativity that goes into the retelling of these stories, even though they, they may be loosely based on on something that we're familiar with. Um, do you. When you approach the story, um, are, are you a, a detailed planner? Uh, do, do you lay out a you know a, a skeleton of the book ahead of time before you start drafting, or uh, are you the kind of writer that maybe you know sets some goalpost and then just kind of sees where the creativity takes him? No, I'm pretty detail oriented. I'll come up with an outline for each story. I'll, I'll research the myth and, and and see you know what the highlights are. So. They, like in the, the Golden Fleece, I know that there's a, a Jason and he goes on a quest for the Golden Fleece and there's a dragon that guards it and there's these characters that help him. And uh, so I, I know that the basic milestones that, that I have to hit, the landmarks of these stories, I'll come up with an outline and then I will work with my editor and we will refine it and then we will send it to National Geographic has a, an expert on Greek mythology who will then vet it look through it and say, you know, this is an opportunity you're missing here to add this magical item or this character or, or this particular character might act this way. And, uh, you know, sometimes I want to, because I, it, I am trying to cram a lot into a small amount of words, really, that uh, we definitely condense stuff and maybe we'll take some characters from another story. But the, it, she'll kind of help me get the story within the guardrails of the myth. And then I'll, we're good. I'll take it, write the, write the story in a couple of months, write the first draft, and then I'll send it off back to the, the uh, once it's, you know, once we've gone through a few revisions for pacing and, and character voice and that kind of thing, we'll send it back to the expert in mythology and she'll take one last look and say, okay, this is great. This is, or if she says something is way off, we'll figure out a way to uh, repair that issue or, you know, adapt her feedback into it. So it's pretty, I mean, now that we're on, I just actually finished the fifth book and turned it in for illustration. We, it's down to a pretty well-oiled machine <laughs> in terms of the process, in terms of the outline and revisions to the outline, then the, then the, they'll go through the first, second, third, and fourth draft, uh, sometimes a fifth draft, and then <clears throat> send it one more time for for vetting, and then it's ready for copy edit and illustrations. And that's, uh, and, you know, when, even when it's at the illustrator, the, this guy, Andy Elkerton, who does some really awesome illustration. And uh, he might, you know, we, we collaborate and he'll, he'll interpret the scenes in certain ways. And sometimes I'll look at what he's done and be like, well, that actually looks better than what I wrote. So I might actually ask for one for some tweaks and come in and tweak it to better matches illustration or we'll both work together to make it matches illustration. So, you know, at a certain point, you just got to be done. And the more you tweak yeah. and mess with stuff, the more chance you have of introducing errors. And, and uh, so, you know, you start to get past all the safety nets of copy editors and, and that kind of thing. So we definitely have a cutoff point. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much the process, pretty regimented. And I'd say that, that's true for all of my, even my, you know, my nonfiction projects. Uh, yeah. But that said, you know, in the revision process, too, there would be a point where the editor will be like well this kind of drags here or this is a plot hole or this doesn't make sense so there's definitely a couple of the books i've introduced I've, I, some 
basically little set piece action sequences just because I don't want things to drag. I just want the, the stories to be pretty, you know, engaging the whole way through. And, I, and the chapters are pretty short. So a young reader can sit down and read a chapter in a few minutes. And then ideally they'd be like, well, okay, one more chapter, one more chapter. Next thing you know, they've finished the book. Wow. I, I'll bet the collaborative nature of working with an illustrator, um, that that has to be a really interesting dynamic. And I think that, that that's something that most fiction writers don't get to experience. Um, you know, and I, I guess it would be easy to, uh, to kind of be territorial, you know, like how dare you interpret this? You know, this was not my vision. Um, but you know, if you have a good relationship with your illustrator, I bet that could be really freeing and, and bring things, uh, into the creative process that, that you wouldn't normally get to experience. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's the way I see it. Is, uh, is it just enriches the whole, whole process. Um, you know, there's there's uh, certainly some back and forth where um, the biggest issue is consistency. That's the only thing where there might be a character that, say, halfway through the book is wearing a certain magical charm. So they have to be drawn with that charm to the first half of the book and then making sure then that it's removed at the right point or is transferred to another character at the right point. There's consistency. Consistency things are the only, and it's not even a bad thing. It's just something that you got to pay extra close attention to because you know the readers will. But yeah, just I mean, it's like when I was when I was a kid and I'd read a book and then they would make a movie. Suddenly, then if I read the book again, I would see the actors' faces portraying the characters in the book, and that's kind of how it is now. Ever since I've started working with Andy, that's how I see the characters is his illustrations because um, you know we had some basic descriptions but he really he really brought them to life like down to the, the little tufts and in, in the ears of athena the cat and just the expressions that zeus makes and uh, it, it it's it's a lot of fun to really see him come to life and then the other aspect to it that's interesting is you know they they take these books and turn them into audio books and they have uh you know different basically voice actors that read the books and do the voices for the characters and that's cool too then to hear the dialogue um read by and interpreted by a voice actor so that that's another and that's something i'm really not involved with at all i just the day it comes out i, I listen to it and i'm like oh that's cool i, I like <laughs> I, I like the voice he's doing there for Poseidon. absolutely i i love audiobooks and uh i couldn't do everything that i do if it weren't for audiobooks and uh you're right they they bring such a a new element to the story there it's it's so fun to to hear the story come alive in someone's interpretation. Oh yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Plus, you know, you can suddenly, you know, go for a walk. <laughs> go for exactly. A Disney, you can put it on in the car. If you, you know, uh, twenty years ago, you try and read a book in the car, I wouldn't end very well. <laughs> Zeus the Mighty, the epic escape from the underworld is available everywhere now. When you're hearing this, uh, go grab it. We're going to have links to it in the show notes of the episode. Or go grab it from your local bookstore. You can find it everywhere. Uh, Crispin, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into the this amazing series and then you know follow along for everything that you're up to, where can they connect with you online? Well, really, the best place is just ZeusTheMighty.com. The, um, the series has uh, inspired a podcast, so they can find links to the podcast. And there's some games that readers can play and just lots of you know, introductory snippets and st- stories, comics about the characters. And uh, they can even learn more about Greek mythology there. 
Um, otherwise, you go to Amazon and put in my name and see everything else I've written for National Geographic Kids. Um, but really, ZeusMighty.com is the, probably the best place to start. Fantastic. We'll link that up in the show notes uh, as well to make it easy for folks to to uh, find all that stuff going on. Uh, Crispin, we're going to send everyone to pick up a copy of Zeus the Mighty, the epic escape from the underworld. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to come back on the show. Oh, thank you as always. It's, it's a pleasure, Hank. It's uh, fascinating to catch up. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Glebe's The Jason Crane Series. Hedwig slipped into David's den, the circular reading room. A ladder of crude rungs protruded from the wall, remnant of its days as a grain silo. He pulled himself upward, rung by rung, until the bookcases and sofas were far below. Even if he fell and died, he didn't really care anymore. No, he did care. He couldn't die yet. She had to die first. That would make their divorce final if she wanted it so much. Darkness enveloped him. He reached the top of the ladder and stepped off onto a catwalk of black mesh, lit only by the faint light of the four square windows that encircled the turret. From this perch he could see the exit she would use. He felt like an assassin, like Lee Harvey Oswald in the window of the Texas School Book Depository. But he wouldn't use a rifle, no. Rifles leave evidence. Rifles can be produced in court. Rifles can miss. He pulled back a shroud of burlap and opened the cardboard box he'd stashed up here earlier that day. He reached into it and withdrew the only murder weapon, the only magic bullet a Van Brunt could ever need. The gold lantern flashed in the moonlight. He held it up to the window. One if by land, two if by sea, he thought, and then it's time for a midnight ride. But it won't be Paul Revere, no... Not Paul Revere at all. He found the oyster knife at last. He lay his cupped palms sideways over the vent. Don't get blood on your Armani. And stabbed the blade into his palm. The blood came hot. He dripped it into the lantern, where the skull of the horseman waited to sip it like nectar. The reliquary glowed, and an incantation in Old Dutch appeared, shining from within the metal. It was time. Hedwig bent and whispered into the vents. Rise, headless, and ride. The letters vanished, and a cold white light burst from the thing. The skull wasn't just a skull anymore. It had gestated. Capillaries clung to it the way fine hair clings to the crown of a newborn. A thick, carotid artery moved with snake-like undulation, drinking blood from the pool at the base, pulling it upwards to circulate through scarlet vessels, through twisting coils, slurping the liquid greedily, the way little Zeph used to slurp strawberry Nesquik through a crazy straw. The blood pulsed and pushed into the nose, into the eyes, into the hollow cavity within the skull. But was it hollow still? Hedwig didn't think so. He felt a mind growing there, something with a will to challenge his own. He fixed his gaze to the twin caverns of its eye sockets, speaking slowly and deliberately. Jessica Bridge. The death's head grin broadened somehow, and a thread of black and green liquid, shiny as a horsefly's wings, trickled from the gap of a missing eye tooth. 
Only Jessica Bridge. Do you understand? He shook the lantern. Do you understand? The face lurched forward and struck the glass, leaving a red splash there. It wobbled and settled, smiling and nodding. Jessica Bridge, hissed the face. Yes. Hedwick raised the lantern a little. Jessica Bridge. The red face tipped backwards and the jaw cracked wide. Hedwick recoiled. Something pink and wet writhed inside that mouth. The nub of a new tongue, salivating as if it could taste the name. Jessica Bridge. Jessica Bridge. Jessica Bridge. Jessica Bridge.